Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Tamara Thomas, editor-in-chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Annabelle Castro-Thompson, Nurse Practitioner and Senior Vice President for Health Equity at Equality Health, a leading provider of value-based care focused on improving the health of diverse populations. She's here to talk about ways to reduce health inequities in Latino communities. Thank you for speaking with me today, Annabelle. It is wonderful to be joining you, Tamara. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, you're quite welcome. So let's get started. Can you talk about some of the statistics driving health inequities in Latino communities? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there are both positive and negative health outcomes among Latinos. The data tells you tells us that Latinos have the longest life expectancy of any racial and ethnic group in the United States. And we also have lower death rates due to heart disease and cancer than non-Hispanic whites. Yet we have higher rates of chronic conditions such as type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and we are also disproportionately impacted by low birth weight obesity, HIV AIDS, and COVID-19. A few of the, uh, of the uh, data that we have on the Latino community is that life expectancy among Latinos in the United States is about 78.8 years compared to 77.6 years for non-Hispanic whites. This is compared to 71.8 years for non-Hispanic black residents. When we look at cancer death rates, we have 122 death rates per 100,000 among Latinos. And this is low compared to 170 deaths per 100,000 among non-Hispanic whites. When we look at heart disease death rates, we're at 129 versus 173 deaths per 100,000. Some of the more startling comparison, Tamara, when we look at the Latino community is chronic disease. When we look at diabetes, Latinos are twice as likely to have type 2 diabetes, even though we're a smaller portion of the U.S. populations. Over our lifetime, the CDC estimates that Latinos have a 40% chance of developing type 2 diabetes throughout our lifetime, and we have greater than 50% chance to get it at a younger age. The problem here is that when we do get uh, type 2 diabetes, it leads to greater complications. And so in Latino populations, we see a greater number of amputations. We see retinopathy, which is eye disease or blindness. And we also see kidney disease. 
Latinos generally also experience higher rates of obesity than non-Hispanic whites. And so among Latino American women, we have 79% are overweight and obese compared to 64% of the non-Hispanic white population. These findings also translate to childhood obesity in Latinos. And so we are seeing about 39% compares to 29% in non uh, Hispanic whites. And so these are changes that we're seeing in our community that will have long-term repercussions in our healthcare system for years to come. The last thing I wanted to say, Tamara, is that um, we know that in COVID-19, Latino communities were disproportionately affected. And so while we accounted uh, for 21% of the nation's COVID-19 uh, uh, rates. And what I want to say is that Latinos face 1.0 times more infection. We, we, uh, we have 2.3 times more risk of hospitalization and 1.8 times the risk of death from COVID-19. And these are these, this is data from the CDC. And so we know that Latinos have a preponderance of chronic disease. And when we look at pandemic, in uh, the, the forces around the pandemic, we know that Latinos were highly impacted. Wow. Well, before I get to my next question, when, when you talk about Latinos, the Latino community is made up of three major types. You've got the indigenous, European, and African. Um, so are you referring to any one particular group in your work, or does your work cover all three groups? So far from being a monolithic, community, the Latino community is very heterogenic. When I talk about Latino community, Tamara, I am talking about uh, people from all aspects. And so diversity in terms of country of origin and race. Uh, most of the Latinos that we have, for example, in places where we do business equality, Health, which is Arizona and Texas, majority is of Mexican descent, and we could say this is of European white descent. However, a lesser number is from Central American, and many of them uh, from Central American do a, a self-identify as Afro-Latinos. We also know that in the Latino community, there's great variability as to who is a U.S. citizen. About 80% of Latinos are U.S. citizen, and about 33% of Latino community is foreign-born. When, when we also talk about Latino community at Equality Health, we're talking about a great variability in fluency. So among the Latino uh, subgroups that reside in the mainland United States, so not counting Puerto Rico, about 71% of us Latinos speak another language other than English at home. And 28% of us feel like we're very fluent in English language. And so I'm talking about a very heterogenic uh, community that makes up uh, the greater Latino community here in the United States. So you've laid out a lot of data points um, with regards to the Latino community. Um, can you talk about the factors driving these health inequities? Yes. Um, so typically, a group with educational, economics, and healthcare advantage such as non-Hispanic whites will outlive a disadvantaged population. And so 
It is true that when comparing life expectancy between non-Hispanic whites and African-Americans and Native Americans and Latinos, Latinos have a greater life expectancy. However, we do know that there's, there's uh, this, this um, phenomena going on in Latino community that Latinos who regularly uh, live or come from another country uh, and, and were not born here in the United States, we happen to see a Hispanic paradox. The Hispanic paradox tells us that Latinos who are coming from another country, they bring with them some social behaviors uh, that are very conducive uh, to less chronicity of disease and in greater life expectancy. We also know that there's Latino subgroups such as Mexican and Dominicans that tend to not smoke and that have greater uh, uh, habits uh, or, or bring with them these, these cohesive social uh, norms that uh, particularly assist them. But the disparities that we see in the, in the Hispanic community are more, are more known and are known to come into effect from what we now have called the social determinants of health. The social determinants of health, Tamara says, that a population needs uh, specific things around their encounter in their community, in their environment to have greater health. Because it is known that the zip code and where you reside can have an impact on your health. The research indicates that a person's length and quality of life and overall health status is actually dependent on things outside factors of our normal uh, healthcare environment. And so what I'm talking about is we're talking about factors such as housing, income, educational attainment, employment. Do you have access to healthy foods? Do you have access to transportations? These social and economic factors actually we know drive up 80% of the health outcomes in the health equation. And so what we've come to understand in our healthcare system is that health is much more than an intervention at the time of illness and that we need to be providing populations basic needs so that medical health and medicines do not become a luxury. Now, is this, is, are you finding this data um, on lower socioeconomic Latinos or is this regardless of income? So, so there's, there's several things, and that's a great question, Tamara. There's, there's several things that play into effect. So, so some, of the, some of the things that, that we know about the Hispanic community, for example, is that when we look at educational attainment, right, only about 72% of Latinos have a high school diploma compared to 95% of non-Hispanic whites. And when we look at bachelor's degrees, only about 19% of Latinos compared to 40% of non-Hispanic whites have a bachelor's degree, right? We all know that more education leads to a transcendence, greater attainment, better jobs, right? It, more cohesion in the environment. When we look at employment, we know that 23% of Latinos work in the service occupations. And when we look at household incomes, Latinos have about a $55,000 yearly annual compared to $75,000 for non-Hispanic whites. We also know that 
Latinos have the highest uninsurance rates of any racial and ethnic group in the United States. In 2020, about 18% of Latino populations were not covered by health insurance. This is compared to only 5% of non-Hispanic whites. And so all of these things, Tamara, lead to some of the uh, health inequities and health disparities that we are seeing in the health of our communities. As Latinos become second and third generation Americans, do you see any changes in these disparities one way or the other? We do. We do. I, I spoke a little bit about the Hispanic paradox, right? And how we, we found out that uh, Latinos that come from a, other countries and not were, were not U.S. born have ha a greater life expectancy and, and lesser chronicity of disease. And so foreign born Latinos have better health outcomes when compared to U.S. born Latinos. So for instance, uh, they have fewer chronic conditions, they have less depression, lower mortality rates. However, we see that the longer that they stay in the United States or with greater generations that come in the United States, Latinos start adopting risk behaviors. And so these are risk behaviors such as tobacco, alcohol, substance use disorder. We tend to turn more physically inactive and we also tend to maintain less of a healthy diet. In, in another uh, thing that we happen to see is that the social cohesion, the close knit ethnic communities that we have in, in other countries falls apart here. So it is not to say that it's inevitable that the health disparities that we see in Latino communities in future generations will grow. This is just to say that there are many individuals, researchers, communities, and healthcare practitioners that are working to understand why is it that health disparities are prominent in Latinos and how do we improve health equity? How do we take, Tamara, some of these a, a positive social factors that we see in Latino communities and how do we embed them and understand them so that it brings uh, lesser health disparities. One of the things that I will say, for example, I used to work in the hospice uh, arena. I was a nurse practitioner for hospice and palliative care. When you look at hospice and palliative care, Latinos are underrepresented. When you look at nursing homes, Latinos are underrepresented in nursing homes and even in skilled nursing facilities. And so we tend to take care of the elderly. We tend to keep them at home. We, can, we tend to surround them with multi-generational households. And these have tremendous positive influences on the lives and the quality of life of people. You know, going back to the Hispanic paradox and social behaviors, which is really important, um, basically, what you're talking about is the Americanization of, of the future generations, or, you know, as they, as they stay in the country. There was a study that was done, and they found um, that um, Asians, when they, you know, the, the breast cancer rates, for example, were very low in their countries. I think it was a Japanese study. And then when they came to America and adopted American habits and lifestyles, um, breast cancer rates went up. So it's very interesting how uh, the Americanization of, um, of cultures just you know, creates these really modifiable risk factors. It's fascinating. I would also add, Tamara, that um, you know, um, um, many of our ethnic and, and um, 
underserved populations or, or ethnic minority populations were very much underrepresented in, in, in higher sectors of our society. And so to a certain extent, um, the, the more acculturated we become, the higher educated that, that we become, we, we tend to uh, um, live in, in environments where you don't see yourself represented as much. You can deal oftentimes with racism or discrimination and, and, and stress. And so, and so we know that these, um, these factors have deep repercussions on the, on the health being of, of individuals. And so something else to take into account, this is also a social determinant of health that's very well documented in the literature. So in your article, you come up with detailed steps for healthcare providers to help identify these disparities. Can you talk about these steps? Yes, yes. So, so it is important that if providers, if the healthcare system has come to understand that the social determinants of health are so important and that we need to ensure that we connect patients to these resources, then that we have a proactive and systematic way of making sure that we are assessing and addressing the social determinants of health. One of the things that I've always said is clinicians recognize that this type of information is important, but they can't begin to assess patients' needs and certainly refer them until they know the problems that are prevalent in the populations that they serve. So I put together three different steps, Tamara, that I think should be ingrained in every healthcare system, in every hospital, and in every provider practice. Providers need to be assessing for SDOH, for the social determinants of health. And we have some great tools in our country that can help us get this information. One of the ways that I recommend that they do it so that it doesn't disrupt a provider's visit is that it can ideally be collected pre-visit or while the patient is waiting in the patient room. Once you collect this information, then you can make it easy for these patients to be connected to resources. It is important, however, that we recognize that some people have health literacy issues. And as I stated previously, much of the Latino population speaks Spanish fluently. And so we have to make sure that for Latino populations, if we're going to be assessing for the social determinants of health, that we make these tools available in their language. So that was step one. You, we need to find a way to routinely assess for patients, whether it's done at every visit or maybe once a year. The second thing is that if you get the data, learn to analyze it. And the importance of analyzing the data is to be able to understand the challenges that face Latino patients so that you can connect them. A patient that has uh, housing insecurity, for example, or doesn't have stable housing and is a diabetic and is on insulin will not have the ability to refrigerate their insulin. And if the insulin is not refrigerated, it can, it can be wasted, it can go bad. So it is important to understand the social factors of patients and connect them. If we learn to evaluate the data, then we can make decisions about where investment and allocation of resources should be done. And then last but not least, if we are going to be asking our providers to assess for these insecurities, then we need to give them a mechanism to connect patients. I've always said that the clinician 
physician's practice or a provider of practice is one of the best places to assess because often providers have a relationship of trust with these patients. And so let's make sure that as healthcare system, as people working in the healthcare field, that we've actually have procured partnerships in the community with community-based organizations that are capable of fulfilling these needs for patients and that can actually connect them. That somebody from the agency is going to pick up the phone and say, I received this referral. I need, I know that you need to be connected. I am happy to ensure that you that you meet. Uh, all the criteria and that I can enlist you in this program right now so that you can be assisted. When we get to that point, Tamara, we will definitely help ensure that many of these health disparities lessen and we improve health equity. Well, let's all assume that the data can be collected from the community to begin with, right? Do you see any challenges with this approach? So, so a patient may not see the immediate value in completing uh, you know, a survey when they're in the waiting room and in pain, right? Or if they resort to emergency care, which often happens because they don't make it to, a, say, a primary care physician. Do you see any challenges to this approach? Many, many. One of the things that, that we find is that oftentimes, uh, patients don't wanna fill out this information. The great preponderance of patients will fill it out because it's being given in a trusting environment when they're in front of the physicians, but others don't want to. One of the things that we see in Latino and ethnic underserved uh, minority populations it, is that it's oftentimes shameful and difficult to admit that you're incapable of providing for your family. Latinos pride themselves in being able to provide better opportunities for their loved ones. And so oftentimes we're re-traumatizing patients and having asking them. One of the best questions that we have in the tool that we use at Equality Health Camera is at the bottom, we've actually asked patients, do you want to be connected? Right? Because if you're filling this information just because we're asking, but you're not seeking a connection, then there's no need to engage the patient. We need to be engaging the patients and we need to do it in, in a sensible way. It needs to be action oriented and it needs to be. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In an assistive way. The other thing that we find is that providers oftentimes are, are bogged down with regulation and, and compliance and all these things that they have to do in the practice. And so our providers 
If we want them to assess for social determinants of health, we need to be incentivizing them to a certain extent. And we need to help them get the operational efficiencies that they need in the practice in order to be able to achieve this. And then lastly, what I will say, one of the other barriers is that many, as you mentioned, many Latinos don't have health insurance and they lack a medical home. And so they don't have an established provider, right? We just said that SDOH is probably one of the best places to assess it in the practice. And so we need to ensure that community-based organizations and that other businesses in the community have also started doing SDOH assessment in that we give them the capabilities that once they assess, they can also collaborate and connect patients. I am a firm believer that the Latino community spends 90% of their time in community and only engage the healthcare system when necessary. And so when we think about social well-being and social health, it needs to be routed in community because community is touching these members, these patients every day, and there's great ways to do it. Uh, I'm just curious, do you, just from a cultural competence perspective, do you see any value, and you don't have to agree with this, I'm just wondering, do you see any value in ensuring that the providers look like and speak like the people that they are serving? Just yeah. because you talked about, for example, the shame of you know having to admit that you can't provide for your family, for example, um, in the way that you feel that you should. Um, if you're speaking to somebody who is, from your culture, you probably would be more apt to, to talk about that as opposed to someone who's from a completely different culture and would have no idea what you're talking about, well-meaning though they may be. Can you talk about that a little? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So cultural congruent care, which means that you have a patient and a provider of the same culture. So you not only speak the language literally, but you also speak the culture figuratively, yes. has been shown to lead to greater patient satisfaction, greater continuity of care, less use of ER visits, and it leads to greater behavior modification. So the outcomes when you have a provider and a patient of the same culture are well documented. The number one problem that we see, Tamara, is that our providers do not mirror community served. You talked in one of your previous podcasts about the, the, the small number of minority ethnic providers that are graduating yeah. and enrolling, right, in yeah. medical school and in nurse practitioner school and in MPA school. And so our communities are being served by providers that don't look like them and don't sound like them. And so it's very important to be lifting the competencies of these providers so that they begin to understand not just how to be aware of cultural differences, but how do you provide culturally relevant care, culturally effective care in your practice? What does that look like? How do you, how do you embed trust and respect in a personal approach and how do you how do you show a warm bedside manner right and more importantly how do you do shared 
decision-making because Latinos and other ethnic minority groups do share, share decision-making. So it's not just the patient making the decisions, it's the entire family. And so at Equality Health, we're teaching our providers, this is how you do it tactically in the practice. And these are the types of things that you should do to better serve your patients so that it leads to greater trust, better quality and outcomes. Wow, that's great. Uh, I'm glad to hear that, that you're teaching them how to do this so that there's an awareness that, okay, there are things that I might not be aware of that I should be aware of so that I can better serve this population and help them uh, and be effective. Uh, now, is there any money allocated or available to fund these types of public health initiatives? There is. Fortunately, the recognition, right, that health is much more than an intervention at the time of illness is, is staying relevant and everyone is talking about it. CMS is talking about it. Every single health entity is focusing on it. And so we have increasingly, there are state efforts, municipality efforts and federal efforts to make sure that we fund these initiatives. Um, some states are pursuing uh, uh, 11, 15 waivers. Uh, these allows you to focus specific dollars into SDOH to make sure that you're assessing and addressing SDOH. Here in Arizona, the, uh, the Arizona Health Information Exchange and the Arizona Health Co Care Cost Containment System, which is our Medicaid agency, has partnered to implement a single statewide referral service uh, that builds state infrastructure to make sure that everyone is going to be compensated and monetarily incentivized for, to address and assess the social determinants of health. So this is similar to the effort that's taking place in North Carolina, which they call the NC Care 360, and other states have done it too. And so glad to see, glad to see that there's more concentrated efforts, global broad efforts, to make sure that everyone is utilizing the, the, the same system, to make sure that we create efficiencies in the system, and to make sure that community-based organizations are not just bombarded with referrals, but have the mechanisms to really meet the needs of patients. And how do you, um, do you have anything in place to catch people who fall out of the care or fall, fall out of the system? So, you know, someone starts and then for whatever reason, maybe work, maybe it's just too much, maybe there are certain, you know, barriers, they don't continue their care. How do you catch those people as they're falling? So, so some of the things that we're doing at Equality Health, Tamara, is um, we have community health care workers. We recognize that there are people that are, are uh, the social phenomena or perhaps the chronicity of disease has caused them to be too sick, to lose their insurance and to have less capabilities for self-care, right? And so our community healthcare workers can go visit this patient at home that perhaps doesn't have transportation or perhaps can't get to a provider practice, right? To make sure that we're giving the care in a setting that's acceptable to them, conducive to them, and then that we can, can help them connect them to the social resources that, that they need. More and more, People are utilizing or providers and healthcare systems are utilizing promotoras in the Latino community. 
community healthcare workers. We're using social workers because there's an understanding that the social phenomena is so important. And we're allocating dollars towards home care, which is important for people, whether your home care is in your home or your home care is wherever you put a roof over your head, including homeless population. And so we need to be creative. We also need to get outside the four walls of healthcare and have the recognition that health is going to be more importantly addressed in a community setting in their home and with partners that encompasses health and human services, public health entities, uh, community-based organizations, nonprofits, and certainly the private sector, because there's a lot of tools and technology that can be drawn uh, from those entities to support this type of work. I have two questions. What is a promotora? So a promotora is, is um, a promotora is somebody that promotes health. And promotoras are usually people that don't necessarily have medical training. Tamara, these are your people in the community that like you are movers and shakers, and they are willing to engage their neighbors, their communities to instill health. So increasingly the healthcare system is training these community, oftentimes they're women, these women with education, we're empowering them so that they can go around their community, empowering not just their families and their extended families, but their communities as a whole. As a system, we're beginning to find ways to compensate their efforts, which is very important because the literature shows us these women have tremendous influence and can definitely improve healthcare disparities and, and improve healthcare outcomes. And my second question is going back to the patient who fell through the crack that we're, we're trying to catch. So patient sees the doctor because they're having pain or they're having a chronic pain issue. They see the doctor they don't feel quite comfortable with the doctor for whatever reason. They decide, I'm not gonna go back to this doctor. He doesn't get me or she doesn't get me. And they decide to just deal with it. Now, so then what happens? This person doesn't come back for their next appointment. How, how do we find them and bring them back in? So increasingly health systems and um, health derived products like ours, right? We work with providers and we work with the healthcare systems. We are the barrier. We are, a, we are the, the, the place where a patients that are falling out of the healthcare system, like you said, with it, there has to be a safety net. Somebody needs to catch them, right? right. And, and take them back to the healthcare system. And so to a certain extent, that's us, Tamara. One of the things that we are doing is we recognize that there are patients that don't like their provider. We also know that there are patients that don't like, they like their provider, but they don't like the front office and the back or the back office, right? And so people are making decisions with their head about who they want to have this relationship of trust with, and they're acting with their feet. 
oftentimes not going back to their provider or oftentimes seeking another provider. But we understand that there has to be a deep relationships and a good understanding of, of health in order for plan of care to be successful. And so one of the things that we can do is we can reposition and realign that patient with another provider. Oh, nice. Right? We need to understand who are our providers? What is their culture? What are the skills that they have? And to, to what extent do they service different, underserved, unique, vulnerable populations so that we can start matching patients? Just as much, Tamara, we need to understand who our patients are. I will tell you that from a healthcare perspective, we don't do a good job at asking our patients what is your racial and ethnic denomination? What language do you prefer us to communicate with? Is it just you, Annabelle, or is there somebody else in your family that we should also be communicating with? Because they are going to be able to support you through this journey. And so more and more, we need to be asking those questions. We need to learn trauma-informed care. We need to learn a motivational interviewing, which is skills that we have in healthcare, and we need to start applying them. We know, Tamara, that the typical visit in the United States lasts only nine minutes. Right. Right. And so we need to teach our providers how do their function, how do they function in this very fast paced environment. But more importantly, if it's fast, let's give them tools, technology, operational efficiency so that they can do it better. And let's help them understand from a cultural perspective, how can you change the dynamics in your practice? So when a patient walks in, it feels more inclusive, more respectful, more personable, and it leads to a greater relationship and better outcomes. And how do they provide, I would imagine that um, health literacy has to be a big part of this push as well, because if they don't understand the severity of the condition um, or the disease they have, they're still not gonna follow through, right? Doesn't matter how you know wonderful the safety net is that you have set up for them. So can you talk about that a little in terms of uh, educating, you know, and raising awareness in patients? Yep. So, so one of the things that we have in, in medicine is motivational interviewing, Tamara. You start asking questions that lead you to understand from what perspective does this patient have understanding about the disease process and leads you to the types of questions that you need to be answering for these patients. Another thing that I want to say, Tamara, is I talked about shared decision making and how the social connectivity for Latinos is very strong. Right. Yes. Oftentimes, us Latinos walk into a practice with a group of people, right? Or somebody comes with me. Why? Because they're going to advocate for me, because they're going to be supportive of my journey, right? And because it's important for me to have them there. Oftentimes, what we see in healthcare is that the provider, the, the office brings back the patient but not the family members. And what I often teach my providers is, you just lost a very valuable opportunity because guess what? When the patient gets home, that family is still going to influence that patient. But now because you didn't take the time to educate them 
and to tell them how they can be supportive of the patient, they're still going to do it, but now they don't have the right information. And so we need to make sure that we incorporate the family members, the people that can help you, the advocates, the support systems that we see in families. It might take you a little bit longer the first times that the patient comes in, but in the end, this is going to bring really good uh, dynamics to, uh, to the disease management and often the patient improves. So things that we need to be looking at from a health literacy perspective and from a support perspective. So, our, so your teaching providers then, hey, somebody comes in with somebody, ask them if they want the person to come into the room with them. Don't just assume that they want their privacy or worry about HIPAA, just ask them if they want the person. Yes. Tamara, it's well documented in the literature, at least for Latinos, versus a, 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 a Caucasian patient exhibits independence, autonomy, self-determination. My patients in hospice, Tamara, could tell me their disease process, their failed therapies, and what they wanted for end of life. My Latino patients at end of life oftentimes knew nothing about their disease process because the family had sheltered them mm. from that information. And so it was the family that was telling me about the trajectory and what they wanted to see at end of life for their loved one because they thought it was cruel for the patient to know. And so it's well documented in the literature that Latinos we do share decision-making in that there's a certain sense of paternalism in the healthcare system, meaning I wanna take care of my loved one. I am going to often shield them from the disease process or to the extent of the disease process that we can, because we think that this will yield better outcomes. And so it is important to have an understanding culturally about what you're dealing with. Wow, that's fantastic. So what would you say um, your success rate is in terms of um, bringing people into the fold and making sure for successful outcomes? We are very successful, Tamara. We, are, we have been able to see that um, the rate of ER visits has diminished. Nice. The rate of, of uh, unmerited hospitalizations have decreased. The, the ability of patients to seek preventive health or preventive services has increased. We're talking about child well visits, adult well visits. And so we have shown that when you insert focus on cultural relevant care, right? Providing care through the lens of culture. And when you start addressing the social determinants of health, the social needs of the patients, we get better outcomes. You know, speaking about um, child well visits, uh, we all know that COVID saw a marked decrease in um, childhood vaccinations. How have you guys, have you, how have you dealt with bringing children back to getting their regularly scheduled vaccinations? It's a, it's a multifaceted approach. And so some of the things that we do, Tamara, if, if you want to have presence and visibility in the community, mm -hmm. don't just try to engage members of the community when they're sick. 
You have to do it in sickness and in health, like in marriage, like right? That. Yes. And so you have to be visible, you have to be approachable, and you have to be present. And so we have a wide array of uh, efforts that we do in the community for health education, health promotion, a community health fairs, community festivals, health festivals, and things like this. We also have conversations. We, we have a YouTube channel, which we call Cafecito con Equality Health for the Hispanic community. These are community conversations that we're having every month. And, and we, we acted, Tamara, as if you and I were talking over coffee. We're two friends talking. These are not academic conversations. These are conversations for the people for, to understand about certain topics. We talk about disease process, we talk about management of disease, but we also talk about prevention. When school was about to start, we talked precisely about that, about a child well visit, why is it, why is it important, right? And when to do it. We talked about um, physicals that you have to have for sports, and but, but just for people to understand the value behind that and the reasons as to why you do it. And then furthermore, Tamara, we have very specified efforts in the provider practice because we want our providers to be calling their patients that they need to come back into the office and to be engaging members proactively so that we can give them better health. We know that facets of healthcare at Equality Health is how do you prioritize health? How do you do healthcare prevention? So preventative care is very important. And then utilization of the healthcare system. How do you utilize the healthcare system more appropriately? And these are all things that we need to teach our communities. I wish that Equality Health was all across the country because it sounds like what you guys are doing is nothing short of a miracle, bringing people into the fold and thinking of them um, like you would think of your own family, it sounds like. Um, the care and consideration that you guys put into these um, health plans to bring people in is just incredible. Actually, absolutely incredible work. Annabelle Castro Thompson. Thank you so much for your time today. This was really uplifting and um, thank you so much. This was fantastic. And I hope you'll come back and, you know, and tell me more about you know, the great work that you guys do as you expand. My pleasure. It was nice to meet you. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.